Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. One of our favorites is back on the show today, Dr. Ken Berry, who is the author of Lies My Doctor Told Me. He's been on the show twice. You can look at episode 199 and also episode 221. Today, we're going to sort of talk about a hodgepodge of a variety of topics, so um, we'll get into it. But Dr. Berry has been practicing family medicine in rural Tennessee for over a decade. He's board certified in family medicine and was recently awarded the degree of fellow by the American Academy of Family Physicians, and he has incredible YouTube videos and Facebook videos on a regular basis uh, covering a variety of topics in the paleo, primal, and health world, and so he's so accessible, and uh, I just suggest everybody take a look, and we'll, of course, put all of the links in the show notes. Welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me back. You guys just can't learn from past mistakes, can you? <laughs> That's right. We're, yeah, we just keep digging a hole um, <laughs> with you. So, you know, I, before we get into some actual medical topics, uh, I wanted to ask some random questions, you know, because on the previous podcast, you mentioned how you used to be a fat ass doctor until you got into nutrition and understood this way of life. And I guess what I wanted to ask you about is, you know, you're married, and I'm wondering, you know, what changed with you interpersonally, maybe, that might have improved? You know, if you were hating it every four hours, and you were a sugar burner, and you were exhausted, I'm just wondering, you know, how relationships changed for you, if there were any differences? Well, there, there definitely was. At the, at the time that I was that, that fat-ass, uh, ill, angry doctor all the time, I was in a not the greatest relationship in the world, and uh, that obviously was having its effect on my cortisol levels. And, um, yeah, it, it was a combination of work stress, home stress, um, and then just the terrible diet that I was eating. The diet that I had been taught to give to patients who were sick it was, it was the diet I was trying to eat to lose weight, and I was still steadily gaining weight. So it wasn't a great time in my life, and I think a lot of people are stuck in that kind of, you know, in, the, in this part of their life where they kind of hate their job, they kind of hate their you know, their home life a little bit. And, and, but, but it's a lot of trouble to fix stuff like that. Or at least sometimes from your perspective, it looks like a lot of trouble. Often it's very easy and can be done in one day, but a lot of us don't want to do the things that need to be done to fix those things. And so I was caught in a similar situation then, and it, and it really wreaked havoc on my sleep on my, you know, stress levels, cortisol. And so I think probably that also contributed in large part to me becoming almost a diabetic. And so now that I'm in an infinitely better place in my life, and my, my diet is infinitely better. Um, I'm, I've, I've finally found my partner that I've been looking for and my, my soulmate, and so that has just, you know, my, my cortisol level, my stress levels have just plummeted, and I really don't have any stress unless it's self-inflicted, and which I usually count as good stress if you're doing it yourself just to p- push yourself and make yourself better. But yeah, I, my daughters talk about, they're all three teenagers now, and they all talk about, remember we used to be mad all the time? <laughs> I was going to ask you about the kids, because I want to know about the relationship with the kids. Yeah, absolutely. And they're like, and, and still my, my middle daughter, she's a little timid, and sometimes she'll still expect the old me when she like does something or gets in trouble, and I can just see her just kind of cowering. And it's like, look, we're just going to talk about this. I'm not going to yell at you or throw stuff. You know, that's I don't do that anymore. And so, yeah, I was I was a really angry parent and very short fused, very, um, you know, inconsiderate, uh, very rude human. Yeah, no, how very honest of you. And, you know, it's funny because Keith Norris from the CEO of Palo FX talks about how his kids used to dance around on eggshells when he was a sugar burner. Yes. And they would even say to their mom, like, hey, is dad in one of his glucose meltdowns? Like, because, they, <laughs> because they knew. So that's very interesting. Your your kids must, have they said anything about the, the positive changes to you directly? Yeah, definitely. When And uh, Nisha, my wife, I, and they have talked about it like, oh, yeah, you just don't know how it used to be. <laughs> and uh, because they were they were, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 ish back in those days. And it was it was rough, like in eggshells. Yeah, that's a very appropriate way to put it. And like if I were if I were, you know, you could just tell if things weren't going my way, which was basically every day, you just stayed out of my way because, I'm, you know, I'm a 
pretty big guy and a pretty loud guy. And, and so when I would get upset, it was not a pretty sight. Right. And it's not something I'm proud of, but it is something that I did and something I have to live with now. And I'm still making amends with my daughters for some of the crummy stuff that I didn't said during that time when I was basically addicted to sugar and, and withdrawing and acting like an asshole all the time. Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, I think we've all been there and that's just so, so honest and we've, we've seen that happen. So I just wanted to kind of shed light on that. I also wonder too, were there any surprising areas for you where let's say the paleo lifestyle didn't help, whether it be skin conditions or insomnia, et cetera, or were they all kind of cleared up for you with just sort of adopting a proper diet? No, actually, everything that I can think of, pretty much, except for my ADD. And I, and it's, it's much more manageable now, much more controllable. Um, and I, I have systems in place to kind of deal with it. I've kind of built my life around it so that it, I, I'm, I protect myself from myself when it comes to forgetting things like this interview today. Um, and so, but yeah, I used to have terrible dandruff all my entire life. I had, uh, I had oily, but yet almost rosacea, like flaky red skin on my face. I had heartburn, severe heartburn every single day and joint aches. My back would ache like my lower back, like an old man. You know, I'd, I'd sit in, in the recliner for an hour back when I owned a recliner and I would get up and I'd be like, oh, stretching and groaning and, you know, just that old man behavior. And when I tightened my diet up, all that stuff started to get better immediately. And you you know, we talked last time, I'm pretty much all keto now. And even it's even like another step. Another level. Yeah, another level from paleo. And but paleo helped me immensely and I still counsel people every day. If you're if you're happy and feel great on paleo, stay there. It's fine. I think it's perfectly ancestrally appropriate. But if you still have problems with while you're on paleo, you gotta tighten up and go keto. And that's what I did. And actually for the last Two or three weeks, I've been experimenting with being a carnivore, and that really seems to be have some very nice benefits as well. Right. Well, are we are technically carnivores? Let's <laughs> so just kind of throw that out there a little bit. Yeah. No, it's interesting too. Um, let's talk about that for just one second, because you know, I had a family member who went down this road, got extremely calorically efficient, and would call me and say, you know sometimes there's days where I'm just having a green juice or I'm not eating that many bulk vegetables and I don't notice the difference in fiber in my bowels or all of this stuff. People would be like, oh, warning, warning, don't just eat meat. Right. And he was like, I haven't noticed that. So is there any, is, can you shed light on that? You know what I mean? Yeah, pretty much all of the, the research showing that meat causes cancer, causes colon cancer, you know, causes chronic constipation, causes diverticulosis, really all that, that research was they basically took every kind of meat from the purest grass-fed, you know, uh, aged ribeye to the cheapest potted meat or spam that you can possibly imagine. <laughs> that's that's literally how the study was done. They didn't care if if it were from an animal, then it was included. Right. And so you obviously, if you're trying to make an objective um, research opinion based on that research, you can't make any opinion based on that. I mean, that, you know, that you can't lump things together and then just make a blanket statement about meat in general, because obviously meat is very different. There are different grades, different qualities, and, and you know, some meat basically is not even real meat. And so you can't lump that kind of stuff, like the pink slime that used to be in the fast food burgers. That's not, you can't call that meat and act like, oh, well, that's, that's relevant to a guy that's eating grass-fed ribeye every day. And so... What I've had, I've got several patients who had gotten stuck on keto and just couldn't lose anymore, just were still having problems. And so they tried a two or four week carnivore challenge. And all of them said, you know, I don't poop as much, but I'm not constipated. It's just that I just don't make as much poop, which makes perfect sense. Right. So it's not uncomfortable. It's just exactly right. And I have to tell people, you know, they'll come and say, oh, I'm constipated. I haven't pooped today. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Does your belly hurt? Well, no, it feels great. Well, or do you feel bound up and like uncomfortable? No, I feel great. Then you're not constipated. You know, the, the definition of constipation is when you have stool backed up, when you have a, an excess of stool that you can't get out. That's constipation. Just because you haven't pooped today doesn't mean you're constipated. But for someone who's lived their entire life eating the pseudo fiber that's in grains all their life and, and pooping three times a day, they, they think they're constipated because it's just a change in behavior, but it's really not the case at all. 
And you've probably read some of the, the, the coming research that shows that fiber may not be the godsend that we were always taught it was. Right. That's interesting. Um, I mean, I know that, you know, we don't need the brand fibers and all of that, and we can get what we need from some vegetables. Yes. Uh, on the two to four week carnivore challenge. So just for people that might be curious about that, what are we talking about? Are we talking literally nothing but meat? Yeah. So what I, what I did was uh, I did two weeks of beef. Butter and egg yolks. That's that's all I consumed. Ooh. And I I usually consume that in one or two meals a day. I I usually fast sure. with uh, just grass fed butter in my coffee for at least sixteen, if not eighteen hours a day. And then I in my four or six hour feeding window, I would eat two or three pounds of ground beef, the high fat kind, with a couple of raw egg yolks, and then cooked in butter or cooked in bacon grease. And I lived on that for two or three weeks, and I actually I lost five pounds. And I felt like my gut, you know, I've kind of got that, that dad bod where, where no matter in what kind of shape I'm in, I got a little bit of a, a belly pooch. I felt like that got better. I felt like my joints were, were more lubricated uh, and I had a shoulder injury, which Nisha would love to tell you about. I was trying to pick up a full barrel of corn, which for a farmer, <laughs> that's, it's like, no, you get help for that. You know, but I was like, ah, I, can, I got this. And so, but I feel like the shoulder injury really healed faster mm-hmm. on the carnivore diet than it did when I was keto. And I don't know that, you know, that's an end of one. So who knows, but I didn't feel any negative effects at all. Really interesting. I'm, I'm, I might do a little biohacking and try that myself. Did you feel the need in those two weeks to like have a green powder drink or get greens or any of this <laughs> stuff? Or were you like, no, just no. straight up what you told us. No. And for, I'll tell you for the first couple of days. And I think what stalls a lot of people on keto is, you know, you still get carbs on keto. And I think a lot of people are still colonized with the carb-loving bacteria. And you may have read that bacteria can secrete chemicals and hormones into your bloodstream that cross the blood-brain barrier. And they can almost literally make you a zombie and make you in the kitchen searching around for carbs. They can do that to you. And so I think that when you do a two- or a four-week carnivore challenge, those bacteria just die because there's zero carbs. There are no carbs. And so, but for the first couple of nights, because I'm, I'm a nighttime evening forager, that's when I kind of get my, my hunger. Mm-hmm, me too. And so I would find myself in the kitchen almost like in a daze, just looking around in the <laughs> fridge and looking in the cabinets. And Nisha's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I, I want something to eat. And she's like, she's like, look at me, look at my eyes. She could tell that I was almost like an out of body thing. She said, are you hungry? And I'm like, no, no, I'm not hungry at all. She said, well, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know. I just feel compelled to look around and see. My gut made me do it. Yeah, my gut's making me do it. (laughs) But, and that only happened for about the first three days and then that went away. And so my theory is that though, after about three days, those bacteria said either the hell with it and packed up and moved or they just died. And now I'm colonized with a more keto friendly gut flora which is fine with the meat. And so I don't do the, the zombie kitchen stalk like I was doing. Uh, and, and the mental clarity is pretty nice. I mean, I, I'm, yeah. it's, it's even really, a, it's a little bit better than when I was strict keto. So you, you got the butter for the fat and you've got some egg yolks there. That's some extra fat. So then if you're eating grass fed, is ribeye your jam? Is that your cut of steak? Yeah. Yeah. I eat a lot of ribeye and then I eat a lot of the, do you eat the fat off of it too then? As well? Oh, oh, yeah. I, I I always eat the fat and the gristle off every piece of meat that I um, that I ingest. Chicken legs, I eat the cartilage off the end because that's free collagen. Why would I want to you know, get a supplement <laughs> when it's right there? Just eat it like you're supposed to. Don't leave half the bird laying on the table. And so it took a minute to get used to that. But now that I'm used to it, I, I like the gristle. I like the cartilage. It's great. I love it. And so I feel like that helps my joints in the long term. And it saves me money because I don't have to buy collagen but if i did buy collagen you know i would get some of you guys collagen all right yeah thanks for the push yeah get some of our unflavored <laughs> collagen um and uh, my last sort of random question before we get into some health topics is i know how i do it i'm just curious what your experience is with traveling and how you do paleo on the road and so i guess for example i would say well you know what are your go-to things like would you go to a starbucks but get a sandwich throw away the bread or you know what are some of your tips and things that you do when you're traveling in order to stay in this realm. Yeah, there are. We, we have multiple little hacks that we do because we've been traveling a little and we plan on traveling a lot more. And so 
we'll go to if you go to a bigger Starbucks, they usually have heavy cream. You have to ask for it. It's down underneath the counter. That's they'll, right. They have the heavy whipping cream. Thanks that's for right. mentioning that. They do. And but now if you just say cream, they'll grab the half and half and I'll have to be like, nope, nope, it's under there. And I, I actually know where it's at because I've been there so many times. And so that's one hack. And so you can get a good coffee with heavy cream. And then you can get, you know, a sandwich or something there and throw away the bread, like you said. And I usually throw away the, the, the pseudo lettuce as well and just eat the, the meat and the egg or the sometimes it's a pseudo egg, but that's better than nothing. But a lot of times if we're flying somewhere any distance and I've done this the last two trips, I'll fast while we travel. I won't eat at all. I won't drink. I'll just literally will have to do a water fast. And we, I did this last time we went to London. And I and I did it going and coming, and I really feel like that my jet lag was much much less than it normally is. I feel like I traveled more comfortably. I just I don't know. I just feel like that that was that was. I'm with you on this. This is so great that you said that. I had someone else on the podcast who's um, we haven't uploaded yet who said the same thing about traveling with the jet lag. They're like, I swear by this. They're like, I just tried fasting, and they're like, I had the easiest entry back into the time zone. That I've yep. ever had. And um, so, and now you're saying it. So that's just very interesting. Something to try, especially don't, don't try it if you're just starting to <laughs> like get fat adapted first or that 10 hours will be tough. But right, no, I hear what you're saying. Um, I, I like that idea. Yeah. Any other on the road kind of hacks? I mean, my thing is I would just, you can go into any grocery store, right? Get a piece of meat. Exactly. Get a, you know, yep. right. Or, and then a lot of the bigger truck stops will have boiled eggs that you can go in and get. And I'll tell you, there are some restaurants that you can't get a single thing at. And one of them, and it really makes me mad because I, you know, I was a poor white boy growing up. And and, and so I, I went to Denny's and Waffle House and, sure. you know, places like that. And you can't order anything at Denny's. Even uh, maybe if you got a over easy egg, that would not have wheat and sugar in it. But if you, even if you get scrambled eggs, they put some of their pancake batter in the eggs. Because are you it kidding makes them me? taste better. No, 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 no. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, exactly. And then, like, if you go to McDonald's and ask for a coffee, you got to watch them or they'll put a little, just a little squirt of sugar syrup in there. A lot of places do that because it makes it taste better and they sell more coffee. And that's what they're in business for. And so you have to, you know, you have to almost be a little, a little bit of a Nazi about that. Like, look, I, you know, and, and sometimes I'll just say I'm allergic to sugar. Mm-hmm. And then that spooks them. They're like, oh, oh, he'll, he might die. So we better not, you know. <laughs> Play that, play that human human nature card. But there's a, yeah, there's an infinite number of things you can do. But one of the best things is to just go to the grocery. And like as soon as we went to got to London in our little, little flat, we stayed at a wonderful little Airbnb. And uh, I went to the grocery. That was the very first stop I made. And I got some over there. They call it double cream. I think I think it was double cream because I asked for every kind of kind of cream, heavy cream, whipping cream. They're like, what? I don't know what that is. So I finally figured out it's called double cream in London. And we got some of that and we got some olives and we got some cheese and we got some meat. And so we just filled up our little fridge and then we did go out and eat. We ate at, the, at this beautiful restaurant in the Shard and we ate some other places. But but when you order at a nice restaurant, you can tell them what you want and they actually have real butter. Um, but that, you know, you, you got to always go to the grocery as soon as you get there. Otherwise, you'll wind up eating stuff you shouldn't. Yeah, that's what I do. And olives are a good one as well to have as a snack or even like macadamia nuts or something. Just have that around in your your hotel room um, as a go-to in between her. Absolutely. Great. So let's get, I want to get into a couple of uh, health topics. We're just going to go to a few different places. Let's start off with Parkinson's because there's been a lot of studies and uh, a lot of connections with keto being helpful to that condition. I'm not saying it's a cure-all, but some of the studies have been pretty amazing in terms of like, uh, I think there was one study that said like a hundred percent of the participants actually had a benefit uh, from going keto. Can you talk about, Give us a layman's description of what Parkinson's is, um, how it comes about, and and then how keto relates to this. So Parkinson's is a disease almost exclusively of the elderly. And the, there, there are some authorities who think that it's very tightly regulated with glucose metabolism in the brain. Just like many of these authorities also think that Alzheimer's is a, is a glucose meta, me, metabolism issue in the brain. And so that may then therefore it makes perfect sense that a ketogenic diet would improve those symptoms. And I don't think anyone's talking about a cure here, but if anyone listening has a relative with Parkinson's disease, you know that any improvement would be a, a blessing. 
And so they, it can start out with just the trimmer that you think about when you think of Parkinson's, that slow uh, pill rolling trimmer. But it can, it can literally be a fatal illness. It can lead to by, complete body rigidity, complete mental shutdown. Uh, and, and you, you wind up being, can you explain how that happens with the body rigidity? Because I know that in certain cases, like someone can't like their left leg will be numb or weird or uh, what, how does that happen? It's just, it's just shifts in the biochemistry between the brain and the nerves and how they talk to the muscles. And it's, it gets very biochemically complex very quickly, but suffice it to say that it all, you know, every nerve cell in your body can either use glucose for metabolism or it can use ketone bodies for metabolism. And so if, in fact, the experts are right that, that Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, things like that are coming from a disorder of glucose metabolism in the neurons and in the, in the brain itself, then why not try the ketogenic diet as a, as a, as a treatment or a dietary treatment for that? And I think you're right. In the studies that I've seen, it looks like that, that everyone in the study got at least some improvement in the symptoms. Right. Have you had any personal experience with patients uh, with any of these conditions that have uh, improved? I have had several patients with Alzheimer's who, and I'll tell you, you know, most of the time when you have a, a person with Parkinson's, it's their spouse who's, ta- who's taking care of them. And or it's it's a son or a daughter. And so you're dealing with an elderly person who's very set in their ways and who also, you know, it doesn't take much to really upset them because you get a lot of emotional uh, issues as well with Alzheimer's and, and Parkinson's and other neurological conditions. And so it's harder for the spouse or the family members to really start to change their diet without really kind of being militant about it because they want they, they want what they want. They want what they've had for the last 60, 70, 80 years. Right. Right. But in the few patients who I know the spouse and it was in both cases, it was, a, it was the, the male patient and the wife was the primary caregiver. And so she was the one who did the shopping and she's the one who made the meals. And so she was able to, you know, greatly increase his coconut oil intake and greatly increase his grass fed butter intake and diminish like, oh, I forgot to get bread today. I'll get it tomorrow. Don't worry. You know, that kind of stuff <laughs> and really drastically cut the carbs and raise the, the good fats. And both of these guys got substantially better. They were both able to stay in, in their home rather than going to assisted living for many months. When, when they first came to me, they were right on the verge of having to go to assisted living right there. You know, like the wife was at her wit's end. That's why they had come to start with. And so, yeah, I've had a couple of male patients who seem seemingly greatly improved in their symptoms. And uh, how should I say the, the, the family's ability to manage them and manage their disease got much, much easier. And they seemed to be enjoying life more when they were eating a mostly ketogenic diet. And so I, I have high hopes that it's going to help Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and Huntington's and all these other neurological conditions that, you know, up until this point, we might every now and then think we got a drug FDA approved and give it a try and it just fails miserably. And so effectively, there's nothing we can do if someone has Parkinson's or or uh, Alzheimer's or any of these things, but it'd be awesome if we could just make it better with their diet. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah, I mean, it's it really is kind of amazing. And also, uh, we talked earlier, and you said ADD, also another thing to consider too mm-hmm. for people who are dealing with that. Go keto. Yeah, I've had uh, I've had multiple moms bringing their kids for their you know their Adderall or whatever medication they're taking who have been on it for years and some moms just want the refill and they want to just keep doing what they're doing because it's easy to give your kid a pill. But there are other moms who are like, Hey, I've been watching your videos on YouTube and I just wonder if this diet might help his ADD. And I'm like, yeah, it might, let's try this. And so I've had a couple of moms, uh, stop. We wean down slowly and stop their ADD medicine and they're doing just as well in school, doing just as well at home. And if anything, mom thinks that they're more attentive and and more of a more of a, a genuine attentiveness because you know Adderall is not a it's not a physiological drug it's not normal to give a kid amphetamines. I know. I want to stop there and say you know I have over time experienced um, being around children who are on ADD medication and you know what again it's like giving your kid meth it's stringing yep. out their adrenals they're up all night they're exhausted mm-hmm. it's like oh they're drunk at it's it's like if you can avoid it. 
avoid it, right? Because essentially you're exactly. going to create another problem with the adrenals, right? Exactly. Absolutely right. And if, and if you've got, you know, if your kid is taking 30 milligrams twice a day of, of the immediate release Adderall, and you're able to keto them up enough that you can reduce that to 20 milligrams twice a day or 15 milligrams twice a day, I think that has a huge impact on their long-term health, both mental and physical. I think that's going to really help them a lot in the long term because, you know, obviously the more amphetamine you take, the worse it is for you, obviously. I mean, that you know, if it were an illegal amphetamine, everybody would tell you that. But since it's an FDA-approved amphetamine, then magically it's different. No, no, it's not different at all. It's still an amphetamine. And so I think that anything you can do to decrease the dose of, of any of the ADD medicines is in a long-term gain for that child who's going to grow up and be an adult. And you want their brain to be fully a, adulted and grown up. You don't want it to be stunted or somehow slanted or, or morphed because of this pill that they took during their adolescent and teenage years. Right. Yeah, really fascinating stuff. So. That's a that's a good attempt and a great way to put it too. Even if you can just reduce the dose, and, and yes. sometimes like you may be able to get off all of it, great. But even if you can start to reduce it and go from there, that's going to be better. Even if you can drop it ten milligrams or whatever, yeah. That's still a victory in my book. Right, I agree with that. So I uh, want to jump to low testosterone, okay, and male yes. hormone optimization because this is a thing. Now, sometimes when we see it, we really see it with. Um, sugar burning over guys who are overtraining and then they're just exhausted and then we test their testosterone and it's low and then if they go paleo primal and chill out on the exercise and stop doing the chronic cardio usually those levels will you know shoot right back up um we've seen that a few times um even in some people that work for primal blueprint but what's your experience with low testosterone it seems like it's more and more a thing no Oh, absolutely. It's a huge epidemic in males in the U.S. and I suppose in other uh, Western countries as well. I see it all the time in my clinic. I have, I've got hundreds of, of men ranging in the age from 25 to 95 whose testosterone I optimize by a variety of different methods. Um, I, as you may know, all the research showing that uh, testosterone is, would lead to prostate cancer and was like, you know, throwing gasoline on a fire was the term that every doctor was taught about giving testosterone to an old, old man with a prostate. It's just, it's ridiculous. I actually have a chapter in the book about, because it's one of the lies, is that, oh, you know, you can't give an older man testosterone or you'll cause him to have prostate cancer. And it's just ridiculous. All the, all this that every doctor thinks they know to be a fact is based on the work of one guy, a Dr. Huggins, who worked at the University of Chicago back in the 40s. And he basically published this little study about uh, it was either two or three guys who already had prostate cancer. <clears throat> and he used a lab test called an acid phosphatase, which no doctor uses today. And then he in, in the in the discussion of his paper, he said that giving a, a man with a prostate testosterone is like throwing gasoline on a fire. And since he was from the University of Chicago, which is kind of a big deal, mm -hmm. and he was well, very well-known urologist, that, just, that was it. And that literally became the gospel for the next, what, 60, 70 years. And so if you say it's almost like a knee-jerk Pavlovian response from a doctor, if you say, hey, you know, I'm really tired all the time. And I'm losing the hair on my legs. Maybe I need testosterone. And he's like, oh, it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. It literally comes out like they've been indoctrinated to say that. It's the weirdest thing. And so I've gotten most of the urologists in my area trained now because I've sent them research paper after research paper. And, and you know, when I send a patient for whatever reason, they finally figured out, oh, OK, so Barry kind of knows what he's talking about. I should I should stop poo-pooing what he says. And I actually have a few of them who are on board with it now. The the cardiologists at St. Thomas Hospital in Nashville, which is one of the top 10 heart hospitals in the country, love it that all my guys are on testosterone if they need it, because they're well aware that the, the heart muscle cells have testosterone receptors on them. And any, every doctor should know that. But for some reason, they do know that. And so they're happy because they know that cardiac output gets better. Ejection fraction gets better, even in guys who've had a heart attack, even in guys with heart failure. There was a couple of research studies out a few years back that said, oh, no, you know, testosterone will lead to increased risk of heart attack. 
complete ignorance. When you look at the study, some of the guys weren't even given testosterone. Mm-hmm. But it's like, okay, so I'm sorry, what? How, what? It's really was just a, a, a twilight zone study. But yet immediately, of course, the media picked up on it and said, oh, testosterone increases risk of heart, heart attack. Boom, that's it. You're done, right? No, no, no further thought was necessary at that point. But, but these, these cardiologists know full well that these guys' risk of heart attack or risk of a second heart attack is greatly diminished because their testosterone is optimized. And so I'm blessed to have those guys nearby so that I can refer my patients to them. But in many parts of the country, there's nobody that you can phone a friend, so to speak, if you're a primary care doctor and you want to optimize your your patient's testosterone, then your butt's sticking out in the wind and you're liable to get, you know, deemed. Right. So aside from obviously, you know, males and females being able to optimize hormone balance through cleaning out a crappy diet, adopting a paleo primal, getting, you know, getting to be a fat burner. We know, we know all of those connections. What are some other ways men can uh, optimize testosterone at any age? I mean, you know, okay. I know there's a, you know, talk about, I'm not talking about 90 year olds, but you know, maybe guys that are, you know, 40 to 60, right? So there's a range in there where hormones start to whatever. What are some other tips that guys can do to optimize that? Well, I think first and foremost, you hit on it, is diet. Your diet can can literally raise or, or lower your testosterone level. I've seen it I've seen it anywhere from fifty to two hundred and fifty points just based on eating keto versus not. With the ketogenic diet raising and optimizing testosterone. And I, I seldom see it get men to where they need to be because, you know, they have their age to contend with. They have the plastics in their environment to contend with. And so, but I do see it automatically improve their testosterone level. Secondly is, is how you live your life. And I think, uh, I think Mark talks about this. You know, you need to, from the book, you need to run fast. Sometimes you need to lift heavy stuff. Sometimes you need to climb stuff. You need to jump off stuff. You need to live like a caveman. And so if you get home from work and get in that recliner that you should sell on eBay, because who needs a recliner, Right. <laughs> If you and that's what you do, that's where you stay until bed. Then you get up and go to bed. Yeah, that does not raise your testosterone at all. If anything, it lowers it. But I think there's a couple of three studies that show that high intensity interval training, which is basically running fast and lifting heavy stuff, raises your testosterone. And so that's right. Sprint session after absolutely. sprint session, uh, all of those hormones are raised in a positive way versus the chronic cardio every day where you're running on the treadmill for 45 minutes, which no one exactly, which doing. actually lowers your um, testosterone if you do it chronically enough. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I have a lot of guys is like, dude, that testosterone is so expensive, I can't afford it. And I'm like, yeah, but you can't afford to eat keto, and you can't afford to to do HIIT. And they're like, oh, yeah. But, you know, some people just want a quick fix, and so that's not what they're looking for. But, I mean, if you're broke as a joke, you can still eat keto, and you can still get out and and lift empty or or full barrels of corn and, you know, stuff that you – you know, heavy stuff and run fast. That's free. That didn't cost a penny, and you can probably raise your testosterone two, three, four hundred points just by doing those two things alone. And for many guys, that's going to get them back up in the normal range. And it's so much less time. It's less time to do a sprint session. I mean, I just did one today on the treadmill. It was like 20 minutes and you're done. And you know what? The results are way better than if I had ran an hour straight on that treadmill. It just, there is something about that quick burst, those bursts and and what a sprint session does. So essentially it's more efficient, time efficient. Oh, it's much more efficient and it's much more natural. And so there are, there's zero side effects. You just raise your testosterone naturally. But another huge thing is prescription medication, and a lot of people don't have a clue that some of the prescription medications that you might be taking right now will lower your testosterone, both in men and women. And I actually have a video on the YouTube channel about that. But one of the most common one is pain medication of any kind. If someone's taking chronic narcotics, you know, for going to the pain clinic, which is a big deal right now. They absolutely, any narcotic that you take chronically is going to plummet your testosterone. And I can remember one guy I saw in the clinic, he was 22 years old, and he came in and he was he was meek and pallid and peaked and just looked terrible. He looked like he hadn't been out of his mom's basement in two years. And he, I said, what's going on? What's wrong? And he said, well, I've been crying at cat food commercials. And I, <laughs> I kid you not, that's literally was the chief complaint, crying at cat food commercials. 
And I'm like, whoa, that's like the statement for low T, right? Yeah, it's like, you have PMS, buddy. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> he was only 22. And I thought, and he didn't divulge to me initially that he was going to the pain clinic. And so I'm like, what the heck? It's got to be testosterone, but he's so young. So I checked the full panel of everything, thyroid, adrenals, everything. And, t- and turns out his testosterone was 173, which is awful, which is awful. Any A guy in his 20s, his testosterone should be from 600 to 1,200. And his was 173. Is it that the top of the range is 1,200? Yeah, really 1,200. And, and we, we think we know that, but I don't think anybody really knows where the safe upper limit is. But I think as long as you're under 1,200, you're perfectly safe and within bounds. But his was 173. And so <laughs> we got him on a testosterone optimization program. And in a couple of months, he had put on 20 pounds of muscle. He looked better. He actually had a twinkle in his eye. He, you know, he, and he probably had left his mom's basement a few times. I don't know. But he just looked like a different guy. You know, aside from crying at cat commercials, uh, <laughs> what are some other, <laughs> list off some other symptoms. I mean, I know obviously like poor recovery after exercise, exhaustion might be a symptom of low testosterone, clearly lack of lean muscle mass, that, that would be an indicator. Yeah. What are some yeah. other ones that guys listening can like look out for if they think they might have an issue? Yeah, so classic <clears throat> signs are if the couch or the recliner is the best looking thing in the house. <laughs> that's probably low T, right? If you work out really hard and you and you stay sore after you work out for a week, but you get no gains and that keeps happening over and over. It's like, I'm a, I don't even go work out anymore because when I do, I literally can't walk for a week. I'm so sore, but then nothing gets better. Mm-hmm. That's probably low T. Just chronic fatigue. Uh, if a guy has a job, you know, and he gets home at five, 6 PM, and he's he's eats and he's ready to lay down and go to sleep. If if any man is taking naps during the day and he's not a night shift worker, that's probably low T. Okay. And when I say low T, it could be any of the hormones, but the most likely hormone, I would check them all, but the most likely hormone is testosterone because that is the energy and the vitality of, of being a man and actually of being a woman too. A lot of people think of testosterone as just a male hormone, but that's uh, actually another chapter in the book. That's not the case at all. Women make testosterone, and when they're at their prime and feel their best, their testosterone levels are also optimized. And so, but but yeah, chronic fatigue, loss of, of lean muscle mass. If you're losing the hair on your legs, and your and your legs are starting to look as smooth as your wife's, <laughs> that might be that's that's probably low T. Okay, right. if you're just a, a worrier, like dude, I just worry about everything. I don't understand what's wrong with me. I hear this a lot. I call it the grandma syndrome. You know, your grandmother just worried about everything. Oh, don't run, you'll fall and break your back. You know that kind of thing. If men are doing that, because men are on average, are fixers. They're doers. Mm-hmm. They're solvers. That's what they, that's what they do, yep. right? And so when a guy's just sitting around fretting and worrying, that's not that's probably low T. Okay, yeah, you know, I want to I want to get into that too. So aside from so the worry part, um, can this just be like a it, it, if it's not a fearful worry, like oh my gosh, I I don't don't touch that, don't touch that, you might die, like that kind of worry. Is it also just stress worry, like business, you know, like money, like all that kind of stuff. If you're worried a lot and your, your mind's rolling and you know, like it's hard to get to bed or you wake up in the middle of the night and you're just like thinking about, you know how you're just running through your head. You know, we've all had those moments. I don't have them really, but I know people who do. Is that kind of a sign to maybe get some testosterone check? It could be. It, it's probably a, it, if that's new for you. And that's the key. When I ask these guys, you know, he's 50 and he's like, dude, I'm telling you, I worry about everything. I worry if my car battery is going to be dead tomorrow. And I never used to do that. That's the key phrase. I never used to do that. You know, he's like, used to, if, if the car battery was dead, I'd be like, what the hell? Okay, fine. I'll jump it off. It's no problem. There you go. Problem solved. And now I'm laying in bed worrying that my car won't start tomorrow. The, the change, that's what tells you, oh, this is low T because you didn't used to be this way. Now, if you've been a warrior all your life, that's just who you are and that's okay. But if this is a change, that then that's probably low T or one of the other hormones needs to be looked at. Is it possible to have low T and have like just one of these symptoms, but not the other? Like yeah. your workouts are fine. You're totally recovering, but you're a worrier. Yeah. You could have just that. A very common thing for men is they'll get forgetful and they'll get absent minded. Mm. And, you know, men are kind of already that way anyway. 
at least if you ask their wife, she'll say he is. <laughs> but as you get older, part of that, what we just thought, well, that's just him getting older is really low T and, and mental acuity is optimized. Uh, memory is better. Uh, memory recall, short term and long term, all that stuff gets better with, with when your testosterone is where it should be. And so it's uh, the worry definitely is a thing. But also if, if somebody's just getting more forgetful, it's like, I don't know what's wrong with me, especially if you're under a ton of stress. Right. Because mm-hmm. too much bad stress can also work towards lowering your testosterone. Yeah, I want to then now jump into and maybe we can finish off with this topic or we can add another one in there. But okay, we all we all mark, you know, everybody in our company and elsewhere, we all talk about the importance of sleep. And people are like, yeah, 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 got it. But there are so many people out there that I know, family members and friends who really have issues with sleep. They go to bed at 930, they're up at two in the morning, and then they're exhausted all day. And then maybe the next night they get a full night's sleep, but then they're back on that train again the next day. So before we go into ways to fix that, um, can you please tell us what chronic lack of sleep over time will do to your body? Oh, it can it can be disastrous. Most of the really out of shape, sick guys who are morbidly obese that I see in my clinic either work shift work or work swing shift, which is the worst of all, or they used to. And so I really think that it can have long term disastrous consequences on your health if you don't sleep according to your biological clock, even years after you're not doing it anymore. I think you can almost have may have permanent deleterious effects on your long-term health and it losing sleep and chronic being chronically underslept can also lower your testosterone. It can elevate your cortisol. Definitely elevate your insulin level, cause you to gain weight. Uh, lack of sleep can definitely affect your mental acuity. It can affect your memory. It can affect your, your reaction time. Just as to simple problems that, you know, if you had slept well, you'd be like, Oh, boo, boo, boo. One plus one is two. There you go. You're like, um, um, and, and I, I remember this from being a, a resident physician in training. You know, we'd stay up sometimes 36 hours straight or even more when I was on the trauma rotation. Sometimes you would sleep two hours in 48 hour period and, and your reflex time is lower. Your, your memory recall, it takes you longer to think of answers and that's just, that's known, that's proven. I mean, any doctor who's been through residency and done a trauma rotation or an OBGYN rotation knows you're basically half the human that you normally are when you're sleep deprived. Absolutely. What about, so let's say, let's say someone's healthy. They're doing everything. They've got good lean muscle mass. They've got good recovery after working out, but damn it, they just can't sleep. What's up with waking up at two in the morning? Yeah. Like what is up with that? Cause that, that's the thing, right? People. And I know sometimes if you, if people drink a little bit too much alcohol in the evening, that can turn to sugar and wake them up in the middle of the night. But let's just say that's not a factor. What is that about? Three common things can lead to that. Uh, One is the alcohol thing because people think a drink or two gets them to sleep, and it does, but it also then wakes you up at two or three and you can't get back to sleep. Second is a lot of times if you're under a ton of stress, you'll have your cortisol surge earlier in the night than you should. Instead of having it at 5 a.m., you'll have it at 2 a.m., and that's going to wake you up, startle you awake. You get up to go to the restroom, and then you're laying there thinking about your problems. You can't get back to sleep. Another is a, a very, very underthought-of problem. In the, again, that's prescription medicine. A lot of the blood pressure medications will give you a subtle insomnia, and it's not, it's not a wide-awake insomnia to the point where you're like, you know, when I started taking that pill, I could not sleep at all. It's much more subtle than that. And I've had people taking, you know, certain blood pressure medicines at bedtime for years. And they're like, yeah, I just don't sleep at all. My sleep is terrible. And I'm like, well, when do you take this? And they're like, oh, I take it at bedtime. I'm like, oh, okay, stop doing that. Beta blockers is one. And and, uh, calcium channel blockers can also have the same effect. And, And there are a ton of medicines that doctors give patients not thinking this is going to affect their sleep, which in turn is going to wreak havoc on their long term health. And that happens every day in doctors' offices across across the country, and that's why I counsel every patient: when you get that medicine from the pharmacy, get that handout and read every side effect. And if you don't like one of them, ask your doctor about it. And if he gets upset with you for asking that, you should maybe find a new doctor. But Medicaid prescription medications are a big deal. And then one more way they're a big deal is you know in America in in Western society we want to we want a quick fix. We want a pill. Give me a pill that knocks me out. I'm asleep for eight hours. I wake up refreshed. Boom. 
No such pill exists. Okay, let me say that first and very plainly. There is no such thing as that. It does not exist, nor will it ever exist. The sleep architecture of the human being is so complicated, we still don't even understand it to this day. We, we kind of got a rough handle on what happens and where you go when you're sleeping, but we really don't know all the details, not even close. And so how then are we going to make a pill that makes you have this perfect sleep when we don't even understand what perfect sleep is? You can't do that. And so anybody who's taking Ambien, Lunesta, any of the other prescription FDA-approved pills every night for sleep, you're setting yourself up for disaster because, first of all, the sleep you're getting is not natural. It's not as restorative and healing as natural sleep would be. And one of these days, you're going to be without that pill. And then guess what? Then you're not going to sleep for three days. And so more and more, I'm trying to encourage patients to not do that. And let's wean that down and let's try something else. And, and there's all these sleep hygiene things. You can just Google sleep hygiene, and there's a list of 50 things that you can do in your bedroom to increase the odds of you going to sleep on time and staying asleep through the night and waking up refreshed. Okay. Now, I do know some people who you know tried everything in life, still couldn't sleep, so they went to like not the Lunestas of the Ambians. They went to like a very low dose Xanax. And I know, of course, that you don't want to do that forever. Um, right. But but again, if it's like, okay, well, if there's all else fails and someone needs to get some sleep. But still, before you get to that point, what are some things that you would suggest people try to biohack supplement-wise or else, you know, or, or another hack to try to consistently do to get back on this train? So there's a multiple things that you can do in the bedroom to uh, help yourself get to sleep and stay asleep. And anybody with insomnia is going to have heard of every single one of these because if you Google it, you can read all this in five minutes. But by far and away, the most thing is your bedroom needs to it needs to mimic a cave. It needs to mimic a blacked out forest night as, as closely as possible, which means it needs to be pitch black. You need to turn your alarm clock where you can't see it because you don't it, it, it serves you no purpose. To look at the alarm clock all night. All that's going to do is reinforce right. how you're away. not asleep yet. Turn it away. The, the alarm's still set. It's got a battery in it, so if it comes unplugged, it's fine. The alarm will still go off. You won't miss work, but you cannot even have that little amount of light shining on your face. Turn it away. Put it in the floor. I put mine under the bed when I don't use, just use my phone. Uh, any kind of Wi-Fi, any kind of... Yeah, so like a Apple Watch even? Take the Apple yeah, Watch all off? That, yeah, mm-hmm. all that needs to be away from the bed. And now if you want to, if you want to, you know, study your sleep for a week or two or three, I think that's fine to wear your watch or some other kind of thing. But to just thoughtlessly have your phones not on, you know, it's right by your bed, you got your Apple Watch on, you've got your, your Wi-Fi server sitting right there by the bed, That all that stuff, nobody knows the long-term ramifications of that. And definitely it's got to interfere with your sleep. So put the phone on airplane mode, get the, put the watch on the charger in another room, unless you're studying your sleep for a few weeks. And I think that's perfectly, you know, that's a fine compromise because you're going to get a lot of information. But your bedroom needs to be blacked out. There needs to be no TV. You need to have some sort of white noise, either a box fan or a, a sound machine or something like that, because as you get... That's popular among guys, I've noticed. I've noticed a lot of guys have a box fan in their room. Like, yeah. It's just <laughs> friends of mine, everything. It's like it's a guy thing. I like to sleep in perfect silence, but I also don't have issues with sleep. But I know the people who do really like the, the white noise situation. Absolutely, because if there's, a, if there's a dog that barks outside or the floor creaks, then that's it. You startle awake, and when you startle, that releases the epinephrine and the cortisol, and then you're, you're going to be awake for 30 minutes because you had a startle response. And so that white noise will bury that dog's bark, and you just it, you won't be consciously aware of that. It won't alert you. Oh, something's wrong. You won't hear. You know, if somebody's in the next room, you won't hear the television. You won't hear any of that stuff. And so it helps your mind wander, so you can wander into restful sleep. Uh, there's multiple other things about the bed, the temperature of the bedroom, whether you should wear socks or not, whether you should, you know. And then a lot of people ground. I don't know if you've ever heard that or not, but but they actually will connect something in their bed to the ground outside and they feel like that that somehow balances their energy and they sleep better. And I, I've never tried that, but I think earthing is probably a real thing. And there, there are ways that you can connect a pad that you sleep on to the ground. So you're earthing while you sleep. And a lot of people will report much, much improved sleep by doing that. I haven't tried that, so I don't know, but it sounds very intriguing to me. 
That is really intriguing. I know that Laird Hamilton, the famous surfer in his book, talks about, you know, half the reason he walks barefoot on the actual ground is because he really believes, you know, like in that earthing uh, capabilities for him. I totally think that's a thing. I can't prove it and I don't know what it does, but it just makes so much ancestral sense to me that that's got to be a thing. I do that quite often myself. Or I guess you could just like put up a teepee in your backyard and just start to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) That might Uh, be a good try if you're having chronic insomnia, you know, it'd be worth it. Um, what, is there any kind of hack if you do wake up in the middle of the night and then you're like, ah, now you're starting to think about work and all the stuff and you're going through your mind and you're already doing checklists. Is there a, a, a hack there? Yeah, there is. And it's, it's, it's free. I love this hack. And if you, and when you first hear it, if you have chronic insomnia, you're going to say, that's stupid. I'm not doing that. But if you, it's called the box breathing method and you can Google this and, and read for five minutes and you'll never forget how to do it. But I, I do this now. Because I have a little trouble if I do wake up, something wakes me up. I have a, it takes me a minute to get back to sleep now, and so it's basically a timed breathing exercise that your brain is in charge of. And I'm not sure why it works, but I know that while you're so busy uh, inhaling for three seconds, holding it for a second, exhaling for three seconds, holding it, that for a second, and just doing that over and over before long, you hear your alarm go off. And, and you've been you went back to sleep and you didn't even know you went to sleep because you were so busy doing this box breathing thing. And I've had a lot of people be able to stop their ambient because they can use that to get asleep, but then also they can use it to fall back asleep should they wake up. That's really fascinating. Um, what about is there a difference between if someone's having issues with sleep? Should they be more of a morning workout person after or, or after work, uh, evening? Does it matter? I think that's probably individual specific. Uh, I've never been a morning workout person ever in my entire life. But now if I were going to work out, I'd probably work out in the morning. I've, I've shifted as years have gone by. But I think that's probably matters to the person. Some people are morning go-getters and some people are night owls who are you know at their best at 6 p.m. That's probably individual specific. What about, um, now I know that I've used 5-HGP temporarily for purposes of enhancing serotonin, but I know that 5-HGP is something that is often given to people who are having issues with sleep so that they don't have to go to a Lunesta or to a Xanax or something like that. Uh, what's that about? Yeah, and I think for some people that works very well. I think for some people, two or three milligrams of melatonin works very well and other people they can't tell it helps at all you just take it in the evening or right before bed if you're going to try a melatonin yeah about an hour before bed is what most people and a lot of people take too much 10 milligrams is too much for anyone and really in your 20s and 30s melatonin is probably not going to help you at all because melatonin is a hormone and just like all the other hormones as you get older starting about 35 40 it starts to go down and so the older you are, the lower your melatonin level is, and theoretically at least, the better melatonin ought to help you get to sleep. And so, but but even the, you know, somebody in their 90s might need five milligrams of melatonin. But if you're in your... Well, let's say you're like in your mid-40s or whatever, and you're just going to try yeah, it. Half a milligram, milligram, maybe two milligrams, but much more than that. And you risk having really vivid dreams, really vivid and and to the point where they're like a nightmare that startles you awake, and then that just defeated the purpose. Got it. And so one or two milligrams of melatonin is not a bad try for people. To, that's like a light hack, little light dose hack. That's, a, that's right. Yeah, and I would say that's in the ten percent category. I like to categorize my advice like that's not one. That's not an eighty percent fix. The sleep hygiene that's where your eighty percent of the benefit's going to be in. But yeah, a milligram or two of melatonin might help. I tried GAB, GABA, G A B A. Uh, for a, for a few months. And it seemed like that helped me sleep a little bit, but the capsules were humongous and it just wasn't worth swallowing two of those at bedtime for that, you know, 1% better sleep during the night. And then, uh, the one you experimented with, uh, I've had people have great success with that one. What's a startery dose for 5-HGP? Cause I know it ranges from 50 to 200. If it's just for sleep, what should you try it out at? Like with the melatonin, you're saying, all right, maybe hack just a low dose there. I guess real quick before we get into 5-HGP, if you do the melatonin and let's say after a week, you're like, Ooh, Hey, I'm getting better sleep. Do you keep taking it? Is that something you cycle? Do you just do it for six weeks and then see if things get better? Like, what's that about? Well, so what we would try to do is mimic what happens in younger humans. And so, you know, an 18-year-old, 
their melatonin level goes up every night, every night, every night. And so essentially it's like they're taking melatonin every night, but their body's producing it. So I don't think you get, uh, you know, used to the melatonin. I think you can take that every night. And I don't think there's any problem with that. Also, the the GABA and and the other, I think you can take every night because they're natural molecules. Your brain knows what to do with them. They don't downregulate other stuff. And the same way goes with the magnesium. If you have chronic insomnia, taking anywhere from 300 milligrams to 1,000 milligrams of magnesium at bedtime or an hour before for some people is like magic to help them get to sleep. And then also, if you have any trouble with constipation, it'll help with that too. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I mean, actually, someone called me recently because they had some thyroid issues and were constipated, and uh, they kind of turned it around with their diet, but they uh, were calling me praising magnesium. They're like, oh, I can't believe I was so constipated before. I'm never stopping magnesium ever. And I'm like, I know. Um, but what form of magnesium would you say would be the best? Because there's 100,000 forms of magnesium. I'm wondering what uh, would yeah. be the best for sleep. For most people, okay, so if you're the person who's having trouble getting to sleep and you also have trouble with constipation, then you want to use magnesium citrate because it has the side effect of causing looseness in the bathroom, so to speak. Uh, Magnesium gluconate or glycinate don't really have the bowel side effect. And so if you're just having insomnia but no bowel issues, then magnesium glycinate, magnesium gluconate, uh, the magnesium oxide is not really absorbed very well. And if you can find it super cheap, it's fine to take, but it just doesn't work as well as the other ones. I, I saw the other day uh, a guru on the Internet said that magnesium oxide was dangerous and you shouldn't take it. And that's silly. It's not dangerous. It's just not absorbed as well. And so it doesn't work as well. Right. And, um, yeah, no, magnesium is just really amazing in general. And so many people are sort of deficient anyway. So oh, it's getting hu- it's some a huge of it epidemic. in your life. Yes. Getting some of that yeah. in your life. I will say this though. So there's those powdered magnesium drinks and I'm going to share, I had a horrible magnesium ass blowout because <laughs> I did not realize that the one company, there's this one company and I don't want to mention them, but I, I liked them and I was using their drink. And then what happened was is I was at my brother's house for Christmas and he had some of it in his cupboard. And I thought, oh, okay. And I had a, a glass and it was a like horrific nightmare. I was screaming to my brother from the bathroom. I like had a total yeah. ass blood. It was so horrible. Um, and I was like, what happened? I thought, did I take too much? It can't be possible. I normally take magnesium. Why am I having this reaction? But it was clearly from the magnesium. So then later on, I had been talking to Dr. Forsman and I didn't even mention this, but they talked about how there were shown to be some inconsistencies in those powders. And then I thought, oh, oh. especially that brand. And I thought, oh my God, that's probably what happened to me that night. So I guess it's probably just safer to take the pills than it is to the other stuff, unless you have a recommendation on those drinks. You got you got bottle zero of that, that didn't you? You got yeah. the worst possible one. Actually, Nisha and I have great luck. We use a, a lit, because I hate big capsules. I'm to the point where if you yep. can't make something in a small gel cap or a liquid, then don't talk to me. I don't understand huge horse pills. I hate that. Yep. And so we found this. It's called Mega Mag, and it's a drop. And one dropper full has 400 milligrams. And so one or two dropper fulls you can put in. It's just a, it's a very salty tasting liquid, but you can put it in some San Pellegrino or any kind of drink, and it's it's not bad at all. And so you can almost make yourself like a you know a hot relaxing tea at bedtime, and then put a drop or two of this, which would be 400 or 800 milligrams. Dude, sleep like a baby. It's really the stuff. Right. And Mega actually, Mag. Mega Mag. Actually, I think I linked to it on my, my Facebook page, but you can find it on Amazon. It is the stuff. And it's it's just it tastes very salty. But other than that, it's so easy to get down. And you know, you probably like And what's that form? I think it's glycinate. I'm not sure. I looked, but then I forgot. Okay. Yeah, it's glycinate. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's great. But yeah, I, can we? Can you talk to the supplement manufacturers, please, and tell them that no one likes horse pills. No one wants to take a capsule the size of my forearm. Nobody wants that. I know. <laughs> I I had a trouble with some magnesium caps too from a company, and they're just so huge. You feel like you. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's like a real effort to, to, to deal with that. And then it's kind of scary because you're like, I don't want to yeah, choke. And you, know? you absolutely <laughs> could. Yeah. Especially older people, they have more trouble swallowing things. 
just that's just part of being in your 80s and 90s. And so that would be great if they thought, well, I'm going to get this magnesium so I can sleep better. And then they got choked on it, aspirated and died because somebody thought that a horse pill was a good idea. So supplement companies, please stop that. Yeah, thank you very much. So this has been really great. I love this hodgepodge of just different topics we've talked about. Um, anything else you'd like to chat about or leave our audience with? Yeah, I want you guys to remember that every body tissue and body part in your body is constantly replacing its cells with new cells. Your liver is constantly, you're constantly building a brand new liver. Your, your kidneys, your the lining of your gut your brain, as a matter of fact, we now know you're making new brain cells all the time. You don't make as many or make them as quickly as you make other body tissues, but you absolutely are. And so, you know, we've always heard, oh, you're made of what you eat, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but here's the thing. That's literally true. And I think we touched on that last time, like your skin. Every three months, you have a completely new skin. Every cell has been replaced. And so you are made of what you have eaten over the last three to 12 months. Are you proud of that or not? Yeah, very good point. I love that. And also it's just, it breeds hope to anyone think, to anyone who thinks that they've gone in a wrong direction and can't repair it. You can. You can start tomorrow. That's right. You can right. start in the morning repairing the damage. Absolutely. So tell us, I, you know, we'll put all of the links in the show notes, but you have lots of great videos on YouTube, Facebook. You're doing several times a week. Can you just tell our audience what you're offering? Because this is a really great opportunity to get some great free information from an incredible doctor and, and tune into what you have going on. Tell us how you share uh, your experience with uh, the world. I try to post two or three new videos on my YouTube channel every week. And it's very keto, intermittent fasting, nutrition heavy but there are also many other topics on there, and I'm, I'm making new topics every day, uh, and it's completely free. And it, I, if you just search Dr. Ken Berry on YouTube, I think I'm the first pop-up now. But I love feedback. I love answering questions. I love ideas for new videos. So if you're like, hey, I've never seen a video about this, that, or the other, send me a message because I'll probably make a video. Because I'm doing this to help people. I'm doing this to help people who have a doctor who is not interested in truly going that extra mile to help them. So like I told you last time, Mel, you know, in the clinic, I can help 40, 50 people a day. But on YouTube, I can literally help thousands of people with the same amount of work, basically on my part. But I'm able to help thousands instead of 40 or 50 a day. And so I'm very happy to do that and very happy to answer questions. I've got uh, an Instagram page that I try to do a lot of work on. I'm trying to use it more and more. Uh, MD I think is the Facebook and the Instagram. And then on YouTube and on Twitter, it's MD with no dot. I couldn't get them all consistent. So that's pretty close. But I try to always, and like on Twitter, I'm trying to be more snarky and making fun of the American Diabetic Association. And, you know, you know, hey, American Medical Association, hello, step up your game. And so, you know, I'm yeah. try, and so I try to use the the tone of each different social media to reach the kind of person that I imagine is on that kind of social media. And so, so far I've been getting, getting a pretty good response and uh, I really enjoy doing it. Nisha went part-time as a labor delivery nurse so she can help me with that. And so we're, we're really going to be able to put out a lot more content now. And I'm really excited about that. That is so great. And we, we just love you here and want to have you on every week practically. So come on whenever you'd like, but thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ken Berry, and we will put all of the links to the YouTube, the Instagram and everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Talk to you next time. Hi, Brad Kearns here with something different than a stiff commercial script message. I want to give you an authentic endorsement for one of my favorite supplements of all time. It's called Adaptogenic Calm. It used to be called Primal Calm, and the key ingredient in this formula is called Phosphatidylserine, or PS. And this agent has been shown in hundreds of studies to blunt the catabolic effects of the stress hormone cortisol in the bloodstream that's released in response to all forms of life stress. Whether it's a series of difficult workouts, extensive jet travel, personal stress of any kind, we're constantly triggering the fight-or-flight mode in modern life. 
And when people say, hey, you should take a chill pill, this really is a chill pill. Because when you consume an appropriate amount of phosphatidylserine and the other supportive ingredients that have been known to have a calming effect on the central nervous system, things like magnesium, L-theanine, magnolia bark, and rhodiola, you will get a calming effect. It's not like a stimulant product that makes you feel more energy and have a better workout, but instead this sort of takes the edge off of that stress buzz where you feel that foggy brain function, maybe a little shaky and finally fried at the end of a busy stressful day. This stuff will help you clear your bloodstream from those catabolic stress hormones before they can do the damage. So I like to take significant quantities of it in and around stressful events such as jet travel or in those heavy training cycles when you're really pushing your body and trying so hard not to fall into that overtraining, overstress, foggy brain function spiral downward. That's right, phosphatidylserine has also been shown to enhance cognitive function. It's commonly used in Europe on cognitive decline patients. And you can make that connection between when you're frazzled and overstressed and how your brain doesn't work quite as well. So this is a brain function enhancing, stress hormone reducing, secret weapon, adaptogenic calm. Look for it on primalblueprint.com.